Good morning again. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. And before we begin, we have a few uh, what I would call housekeeping items, but they're uh, very spiritual in their nature. One is what you've just experienced now is an Advent candle lighting and reading. And we have the opportunity every season, every Christmas season, to lead our families and ourselves in this season of Advent. What is happening on the world stage for all those who claim to know Jesus is we're ramping up towards a celebration of his first appearing even as we long for his second coming. And so what I've done on this table over here is I've printed out multiple Advent guides. There are some that are more suited for individuals as such and some that are more for families, families with small children, families with older children, and also a book, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. So if you want to do something that is a weekly basis, essentially one devotional a week, there are those for you there. And then if you want something that is on a daily basis, there's one for you as well. And this one here is the one I've asked your Sunday school leaders to prepare their lessons over. This is actually from a pastor friend of mine down in Houston. It has a reading from the Old Testament and New Testament every day and a theological reflection on the incarnation. It's beautifully done and it's very accessible to anyone. So this is an opportunity for immediate response for you at the end of the service. If you want to come up here and take one, please only take, I, I didn't print enough for everybody of each one because it would kill way too many trees. But if you will actually take one and read it and it would bless you and you would use the energy and spirit of this season to exhort yourself in the Lord and exhort others in your household, please do so. Also, uh, we the last three weeks we spent uh, our focus on leadership in the church and uh, as we've ramped up to a time of nominating deacons. And so uh, Brother Pat and Brother Robert will be passing out these ballots. Now, it's actually built into the Constitution and bylaws that you would be prayerful in your submission of these nominations. So if y'all go ahead and pass those out. Y'all don't have to turn those in this Sunday. If you're a member of this church, uh, please take one. If you know right now who you're going to nominate, uh, please go ahead and write that in and hand it in during the offertory portion of our service at the end. If you need time to pray and think, you can hand those in at uh, the same time next week. So as they pass those out, um, I want to read from Genesis 14. If you already have your Bibles there, just read along. We'll begin reading in verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshol and of Ener. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. 
And after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Enner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the majesty of your word, the majesty of your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that this morning we would see him for who he is. We would see him throughout all the pages of scripture and that we would be attentive, that you would remove distractions from this room, that you would bless us by your presence and by your word and that you would minister to those even who are not here with us. Pray that you would encourage them, strengthen them and heal them in the cases of those who are sick. And I pray that you would encourage us. By our love for one another, and I pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. So we are in the middle of a study of the book of Hebrews, and we're resuming that today, particularly chapter 7, verses 1 through 19. And yes, I'm going to try to cover verses 1 through 19 all today. And the passage I just read is the center point for this theology surrounding Melchizedek. And it doesn't really feel or read like a Christmas text. As I was reading that, there's probably nothing that stood out to you as particularly festive. What you have is Abraham returning from the defeat or the battle between four kings and five kings. And Abraham comes and saves his uh, nephew Lot and brings him back. And what I want to do is let that story stand in your mind. Keep the story and its details in your mind while we investigate what this man, Melchizedek, has to do with our Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to ask a question before we do that, though. What is the purpose of the book of Hebrews? What's the point? What is he trying to do? Because only if we understand what the author of Hebrews is trying to do can we really understand why he's bringing Melchizedek in in the first place. The author is interested in what your motivation for holiness is. You say that again. The author of Hebrews is interested in what your motivation for holiness truly is. And I would say that that is an important question for you. God deeply cares what your motive for being holy truly is. The, the book of Hebrews is, as the author himself calls it, a word of exhortation. It's actually a sermon. The people that he's writing to in this word of exhortation 
are teetering on the edge of going back to the old way. They were receiving intense persecution for following Jesus. There were many who were not happy with the fact that there's this group who are similar to the Jews, but now are different than the Jews, and they still don't pay homage to the emperor. And so they were receiving intense persecution. So they were considering, well, couldn't we just go back to the old way? Couldn't we just be good Jews and God would be happy with us? The author wants them to endure. He wants them to hold fast to their confession in Jesus Christ. But the main point is why? Why should you maintain your hope and your confession and endure in the name of of Jesus Christ. The answer that the author gives and that I want to give to you is the theology of Jesus himself, or what is called Christology, the teaching regarding Jesus. This is the point. Now I want you to get this before we before we launch into understanding what the author is saying. Your understanding of who Jesus is should be your motivation for holiness. It should be your motivation for endurance. It should be your motivation for everything in your life when it comes to pleasing God. What you believe about who Jesus is. There are tons of other motivations, but the point is only one will do. Only one has the power to make sure you make it home safely. And if it's not grounded in who Jesus is, but a fear of guilt, a fear of punishment, trying to please other people, the fear of man, all of those things won't see you through. The truth about Jesus and your delight in the truth about Jesus is what carries you home. So you might ask, well, then what does this, this story about Abram and Melchizedek, have to do with that? And as they say, well, nothing short of everything. Okay? Most importantly, the author wants you to see the real Jesus, not an imposter, not a velvet Elvis, as it were. And there are so many imposters, brothers and sisters. There are so many fake Jesus's presented in the church and in Christian books that will not sustain you. So the author wants you to see the real Jesus. He wants to draw from the scriptures and present the glorious Christ to the eyes of your heart. And that's the opportunity you have today, that as you listen to what the author says in chapter seven, that your heart is exposed to the more mature teachings about Christ and the eyes of your heart really see him. That's my intention. That's my heart today. Where I get this and why this is important, if you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll, we'll come to Hebrews 7 here in a second, but go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's one of the most important passages when it comes to understanding how God works in your life and what is important for you as a Christian, even. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is how God plans and has planned to save you, to sanctify you, and to glorify you. Some of you maybe have been going about it all wrong. The way God intends to take you from one degree of glory to the next to prepare you for glory is not white knuckling obedience. It's to expose you with unveiled face to see the glory of the Lord. That vision of your heart, the eyes of your heart being opened and the the dirt and the grime wiped away so that you can see him, that transforms you. That brings holiness into your life. That brings perseverance. That brings Christ-likeness into your heart. And so with unveiled face, my hope is that you would see the real Jesus Christ today with the eyes of your heart. It's about seeing Jesus Many of you might need help. You sense, I, I, I can't really see him. I know the stories about him, but I, I don't really see him in that way. My heart doesn't reckon with him. It's cloudy. It's, it's murky. I can't sense his glory. That's why we have these Advent guides. To use the, the energy and the happiness surrounding the season to, as it were, direct the energy of your heart to see the Lord. That you would really see him in his glory. And that's part of what we're doing today with this text. So, what does this have to do with Melchizedek? What I want to do is to give you an analogy that we will run with through the entirety of this passage. A lot of you have done probably a lot of shopping already today. right? Who, who, who's our, who did any Black Friday shopping, right? Don't worry, you can raise your hands. Okay. Um, And I grew up in a house of 10 people. I have seven siblings, so there are eight kids and our parents. And so when we would go shopping, it was an all-day event, right? And we had to load up when we went to town. And the back of our 15-passenger van was all full of bags from Super One and Walmart, right? So when we got home, since there were six boys, it was basically a competition to see who could carry the most in. And we did this practice that I know that many of you do. You try to grab as many of those bags as you possibly can, weaving your hands through the loops and pick them up all at once. This is the image that I want in your mind as we go through Hebrews 7, 1 through 19. And if you want to write these out, On the notes, you can. There are 14 of them. So 14 bags in the back of your car. And I want you to lean over, as it were, and weave your hands through them. And then at the end, we will pick them all up together. And you will be able to bring them into the house that is your heart. And begin to put away and put into place these treasures. So envision these as bags of treasure that will help your heart see the Lord. So now we'll begin. Let's consider this man, Melchizedek. So to summarize the story, basically, Abram is alerted to the fact that Sodom has been uh, conquered, and that's where his nephew Lot lived. And so Lot and his 
children have been taken into captivity, and Abram goes with the men in his house out to rescue Lot. And after he's successful in rescuing Lot, he goes out to meet the king of Sodom. And while he's going out, this man, Melchizedek, comes and blesses him. Notice, if you're still in Genesis 14, if you're not, don't worry about it, uh, he suddenly appears and suddenly disappears. You can actually remove all the details about Melchizedek out of the narrative of Genesis 14, and it almost makes no difference. Abram goes to Sodom, and in the actual narrative, Melchizedek comes and blesses him before he interacts with the king of Sodom. And then the king of Sodom comes, and you never hear about Melchizedek again until the Psalms. He shows up, he disappears. The only thing that really ties in is how Abram refers to God after this encounter. He calls him possessor of heaven and earth, which is what Melchizedek called him. That's the only time in the Bible God is referred to with this title. So reflecting on this account, the author of Hebrews gives us this. Now you can go to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. So this first verse and a half is basically a very simple recounting of the narrative. There's nothing really uh, interpretive here or nothing innovative. But I want you to note three things, and these are the first easy bags of treasure that I want you to wrap your arms through to be able to take in at the end. The first is this. If you notice, while we were reading in Genesis, Genesis calls him Abram. And while the author of Hebrews is recounting here, he calls him Abraham, of course, because Abram's name is changed to Abraham. So this encounter with Melchizedek is before God gives the promise to Abraham, before the Abrahamic covenant, before the promise to Abraham and his offspring, he encounters this man. That's the first. If you want to write it down, this encounter is before God's covenant with Abraham, before God changed his name. Second, king of Salem, king of Salem. This is none other than what comes to be called Jerusalem. So there's a king of Jerusalem, ancient Jerusalem, even before Abraham is blessed with the covenant, before David ever comes and takes the city to be the new capital. There's a king of Salem, a king of Jerusalem ruling before all of that. And third, he's called priest of the Most High God. So you have three things going on. That's the third one, priest of the Most High God. Three things. Before the covenant with Abraham, before God changed his name, you have a king of ancient Jerusalem, the place God would one day choose to set his name. And not only that, you have a king who is also a priest. We'll have to have more conversations on that in a little bit, because that's a big deal a king who is also a priest. And you have a fully functioning priesthood 400 years before the law of Moses is given that institutes the Levitical priesthood. 
So you have a king of Jerusalem, priest of Most High God, and all before the promise to Abraham. Okay, second half of verse 2. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. So let me try to break it down for you. Melech, the Hebrew root, means king, and Zadok means righteousness. So we meet Zadok the priest, who is priest under David and Solomon. And then we have names in the Bible like Elimelech and Abimelech. That means, in order, God is king, or my father is the king. So you have these two words, king and righteousness, put together into one name, Melchizedek. King of righteousness. So this is the fourth bag. So we've got those three from the first. This is the fourth one. He is called King of Righteousness. And notice this, if you remember from Hebrews 1.8. I know that was ages ago. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of uprightness, which is the same word for righteousness, is the scepter of your kingdom. So we have this analogy, this sense in which there is a king of righteousness. That's what his name means. King of righteousness, king of ancient Jerusalem, a fully functioning priesthood, and all before Abraham was given the promises. And then he is also, this is uh, the last part of verse 2, then he is also king of Salem. So the word Salem means peace. This is both a historical statement, what we've already looked at, but it's a deeper reflection here. And so the analogy is made that this man, Melchizedek, is the king of peace. And as we read even this morning in our Advent reading, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince or Ruler of Peace. King of Peace. So that's the fifth bag of treasure for this process we're going through. Now, verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, this verse has tripped up a lot of people. The point the author is making is not that this person is immortal. He's saying as far as the text goes, or as far as the record goes, remember what I said, he shows up and he disappears. There's no accounting of who his mom and dad were. There's no accounting of his death. There's no accounting of his end, of his priesthood. Everyone who's of any significance in the Bible, you know all those facts regarding. And yet, none of those are present with Melchizedek. I don't get distracted by misrepresentations. There are people that say, well, because Hebrews says this, he literally is meaning that this man never died and never had mother or father. If he wanted to say that, he would not have said, but resembling. He would have just said, but being the son of God. That's the only way that would work. So he's saying resembling as far as the text goes, the son of God, he has as he says later, no beginning of days nor end of life. And the author of Hebrews is very careful here. He refers to Melchizedek multiple times as a man. And he never refers to Jesus as a man. He calls him the son of man, and we know that he was born of Mary. 
But he's very careful here. He sets apart Melchizedek. This is a guy, this is a man that the Bible account does not account his genealogy, and that's important. This is a mortal man, but the Holy Spirit, speaking through Moses, who wrote Genesis, intentionally left details out. So this is the next bag of treasure that you need to get your hands through so that we can pick it up. This is the sixth bag that the Holy Spirit left out details for a reason. That we're not given the whole story regarding the life of this man for a specific reason. And that is why we can anticipate that God will finish out the story regarding this man. Because the Holy Spirit left these tales out, the close reader of Scripture can expect that the story isn't done with him. Okay? And I know that that's probably the heaviest bag we'll get. I know that's a little bit complicated, but if you'll spare me a little bit of time to give you an analogy, it's sort of like Batman. Okay? So we all know, I hope I'm not spilling the beans for anyone, that Batman is also Bruce Wayne, okay? But the symbol of Batman lives beyond the person of Bruce Wayne. So in the comics or the movies, whenever Bruce Wayne retires, he hands on the mantle of Batman to someone else so that there will always be a caped crusader, a dark knight protecting Gotham from evil. So the people of Gotham don't know that the original has retired. Those details are left out for the purpose that the people of Gotham and even the criminals would know that Batman lives on. That's kind of what's going on here. In a literary sense, the details of his death, of his genealogy, and everything else are completely left out so that we would know that the mantle lives on. The priesthood of Melchizedek is not done. The story isn't over with him. The details are left out for a reason. Verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And I'm going to read through verse 10 here. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, meaning Melchizedek, does not have his descent from them, uh, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. In another case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. So this is a lengthy reminder of the facts regarding the Levitical priesthood. But the main point with all of these texts, 4 through 10, is superiority. This man, Melchizedek, is just a basic interpretation of the text, because he is the one who blesses Abraham, is greater than Abraham. That's the point he's making. So Abraham pays tithes, pays tithes to Melchizedek, 
and Melchizedek blesses him, that indicates superiority. And just as a side note, this is how you need to read your Bibles. This isn't something unique for the author of Hebrews to pick up these details, that we would read our Bibles so closely that we would be able to build out such a robust Christology from one story, from a few verses in Genesis. And this is the seventh bag of treasures that, that we were trying to get all around our hands. So we're essentially halfway done with these. He's not just another priesthood out there somewhere in the recesses of history, sort of like Job. If you remember the story, Job offers sacrifices for his children just in case they've committed any sins. So he has a priestly role towards his family. But this isn't like that. This is a fully functioning priesthood, and he, as priest, blesses Abraham. He's called priest of God Most High. This is one who interacts at a crossroads with Abraham himself, and Abraham recognizes his superiority and acts in accordance with Melchizedek's greatness and superiority. So this is a short way to summarize the seventh treasure here. He's greater than Abram, greater than Abraham. Now think of this. This is, I hope, what will begin to commend to you the glory of these truths. Even as Moses is writing the first five books of the Bible, the Holy Spirit makes sure that he includes this part of the oral tradition. He makes sure Moses writes down these few verses in Genesis 14 to show that even as he's writing these laws, surrounding the Levitical priests and Aaron and the line of high priests from Aaron down through the present day, he shows that this is not the final solution. You are to look for and long for something different, something greater, something better. Even as he's building it. Do you catch that? Do you sense that? Even as God is putting together this first covenant and the priesthood surrounding Levi, that he writes in an expectation for something else. This is the flavor that you should feel in your heart when Paul says, but now God has manifested his righteousness apart from works of the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. It's built in there. The expectation for someone coming in this likeness and finishing the story is built in. And this is, just as an aside, where I have a problem with what I will call modern Judaizers. I don't want to go back to the Old Covenant. We have something so much better, brothers and sisters. We are of a better covenant. Jesus mediates better promises. We have a great high priest who is not of the line of Aaron. And this is how it works for his readers. He's essentially exhorting them, don't go back that way. You have something better. Look at Jesus. Look at his priesthood. See how great this man was? Jesus arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. That's greater and better than anything that came from the body of Abraham. Because Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered all of the twelve patriarchs, including Levi, and all the priesthood comes from Levi. And all the way back to our great father Abraham, he pays ties to this man. Don't go back to the old way. You have something better. 
Now, at this point, we need to bring in Psalm 110. Okay? So if you will, go to Psalm 110. I'm sorry I'm sending you all over the place, but this is the nature of this text. Psalm 110. And I'll read it in its entirety. This is why we read Psalm 2. We're going to bring in a lot of details here. So bear with me. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So what is going on here? This, this might strike you as a violent psalm. But the author has referenced this psalm multiple times up to this point. Dozens of times even. So I want you to bring in is what hopefully you talked about in your Sunday school class is the Davidic covenant. This is why I wanted your Sunday school leaders to go over this this morning. Because all of that, all of the theology and what God had promised David is built into this psalm. When he says, the Lord says to my Lord. If you're familiar with your Bibles really well, you know that Jesus references this psalm to essentially derail the scribes and the Pharisees. And they ask, well, who is the Messiah? Is he David's son? And Jesus says, well, how can he be his son since David calls him Lord? Everyone knew that this was a messianic prophecy. Everyone knew this was laying the foundation for the expectation that one would come. And he clarifies here, David does, the Lord says to my Lord. Now the idea here, and I'm, I'm, I know I'm bringing a lot together, but this, this, is, this is a big bag of treasure in the back of your car, okay? This is a really heavy one, and that's okay. As you get ready to stand up and hold them all together. David's son is, in terms of succession, less than David, Right? Your dad is greater than you, your grandfather is greater than him, and you can go back and you can go back and you can go back. David is the greatest. He's the head of the house, right? But David speaks of this one who would come, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. He's calling his descendant his Lord. And this is how Jesus trips them up. How can he be David's son if he calls him his Lord? So to do a little historical reconstruction here, you can imagine David doing his devotional readings. And he comes along Genesis 14 and he reads this story of Melchizedek. And this is the song of worship that David writes reflecting on the story of Melchizedek. Because he sees one who is recorded as far as the texts go, has no beginning of days or end of life. And God has already made a promise to David that he would never lack a man on the throne, that his son would rule on the throne of his father David forever. 
So there's only one person who can be both. That this son of David is also the one who would come in the likeness of Melchizedek. And this is what David interprets as he reads uh, Genesis 14. And this, this is the next place he shows up. He's not mentioned or referenced from Genesis 14 all the way until Psalm 110. But Psalm 110 is the most, one of the most referenced Old Testament passages in all the New Testament. It's very important. David gets it. This is the point I'm trying to, to get you to see. David gets it. Even as he is one who often rejoices in the law, right? Have you read Psalm 119? We are reading it together on Sundays. He rejoices in the law of God. He rejoices in the old covenant. But there he is as he's penning this psalm. For all Israel to sing forever about this offspring, his son who would come. Now, here's where I said we'd have to talk a little bit about this. Uh, a king and a priest. So the priesthood belonged exclusively to the tribe of Levi. Okay? If you were not of the tribe of Levi, you could not serve as a priest. Period. End of story. Like punishable by death type of severity. And the high priest could only come from the line of Aaron. Period. End of story. It would have been unthinkable for an Israelite to have a high priest who is not of the tribe of Levi or a son of Aaron. But David says of this son, David is from the tribe of Judah. We're going to get to this in a little bit. He speaks of his son and says, you are a priest forever. So this priesthood breaks the bounds of the old covenant it's far better. It's far greater. The promises are better. It is greater in glory than anything that exists, even in the law that David delights in. But part of the reason he's delighting in the law is that God has shown him in reflecting on Genesis 14 that this is not the end. This isn't the full story. And we're waiting for one to come. Verse 11, back to Hebrews 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Now we get to the heart of the matter. This is the theological payoff. Okay? This question here is fascinating. This is the ninth bag of treasures that you're trying to weave your hands through before we stand up. There's an expectation for something greater built into the old covenant. An expectation for something greater. And it's embedded in the Old Testament itself. There's an expectation for a priesthood and a priestly ministry to come one day that far exceeds the priesthood of Levi and the high priesthood of the sons of Aaron. And right immediately, I'll give you the tenth bag of treasure. So you got five on each arm now, okay? We think we're going to be able to stand? Five on each arm. Because perfection was impossible through the Levitical priesthood, it has a divinely ordained insufficiency. Perfection is impossible through the old way. 
Because there is built in an expectation for something greater, God shows that this is not the final solution. Now here's verse 12, and this should be a stunner to you. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. I don't know where you are in your theological understanding or in your maturity in Christ, but there should be great release and joy when you read that verse. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Some people tried to divide the law into the ceremonial, the civil and the moral law. So which part does he mean here? All of it. Does he then mean there's no more law? No, that's not what he's saying. But the law has changed. Because when there's a change in the priesthood, you change the priesthood, you change the entire law. This is the 11th bag of treasure. This is the payoff, the prize. This is the thing you bag double or twice, uh, twice or three times. So it's protected. It's light and small, but oh so precious. Because the priesthood changed, the law has changed. Why you should feel emotional release and joy at this verse, I want to just read to you a few passages from the New Testament. John 5, 45 through 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? On judgment day, those who have set their hope on Moses, Moses will accuse you. If you're under the old law, you have no advocate. You only have an accuser in Moses himself. His law condemns you if that is where your hope is set. And then Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. If you don't keep it perfectly, to a T, in every sense, in every nuance, you are under a curse. But Christ fulfilled the law in this way. The law provided a way of escape. That one in the order of Melchizedek would arise and mediate a better covenant and give us a new law by the Spirit. Verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord, meaning Jesus, was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. For Jesus to serve as your priest means that the law has to change. Because that would be a violation of God's very commands for Christ to serve as your priest. So there is a new and better law of Christ that takes all of the glory of the law of Moses and conforms it into something bigger and better and more glorious. 
This is further proof that the law has changed. Because Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, which is the kingly tribe, then we must look for a change in the law as well. Verse 15. This becomes more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The author is saying, essentially, that Jesus' resurrection is proof that he is in fact the one that Jesus, that David spoke of in Psalm 110. The fact that he showed or proved that he had an indestructible life by his resurrection, that's proof that he is the one who is to come in the likeness of Melchizedek. You need to tie, as, as you saw in the covenant that God made with David, the forever that he spoke of of his son, he will rule forever. With this forever in the order of Melchizedek. You will serve as a priest forever and you will rule on the throne of your father David forever. There's only one person who can do both of those in the most ultimate sense and that's God himself. So this is the twelfth bag of treasure here that you're trying to get your arms around. The resurrection, which I would say and many would agree is the most provable and significant event in human history is the validation and the proof that all of these great and glorious things are true and you can stake your life on it. The fact that Jesus walked out of the tomb alive after having been dead means that all of these promises and all these glorious, mysterious, heavenly things that are difficult to understand, all of these treasures that we're trying to wrap our minds around together, that they're all true. Because he walked out alive. Because he has an indestructible life. He is this one. The resurrection, here's a way to summarize it, the resurrection proves that Jesus is this new high priest forever. Verse 18. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And this is the second to last bag of treasure for you. The former commandment is set aside. The former commandment is set aside. And so, again, I want you to feel the release from that. That God no longer judges you under the severity of the law of Moses, but the glory of the law of Christ. The former commandment is set aside. As Paul says in Romans 5, 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we're given a better hope. And this is the conclusion the author has of all of these insights into Melchizedek and how Jesus is this priest in the order of Melchizedek. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced 
through which we draw near to God. This is all that we've been saying about Christ and about him being our great high priest. He gives us a better hope. The final bag of treasures is he gives us a better hope by which we draw near. Think of the situation for an Israelite worshiper. You're not a Levite. You're definitely not of the household of Aaron. And so you come to the tabernacle with your sacrifices and hopefully they don't find any blemishes with your sacrifice and they kill your sacrifice and the priest on the day of atonement takes blood from one of the sacrificial lambs and splatters it all over the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And all this takes place inside the tabernacle. You're not even allowed to go in. You're just from outside, way back away, maybe just lost in the crowd, witnessing all these things take place, hoping that the sacrifice is acceptable. Hoping that the high priest has made atonement for his own sins before he goes in to the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of the people. But being in Christ, think of this, being in Christ means that where he goes, you go. Your name is written on his hand. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. So as he goes, as we saw in chapter six, as a forerunner to the place behind the curtain, the Holy of Holies in heaven. You draw near with him. That that priestly office that he has alone, that he brings all his brothers and sisters with him so that you are not one of the ones standing on the outside witnessing all this take place, but you yourself are made a kingdom of priests and you draw near. And even you will stand before the holy God of Israel, offering up spiritual sacrifices to him. He gives you a better hope, one by which we draw near. You are brothers and sisters of this one. Your life is hidden in this one. Because of the nature of this great salvation, where he goes, you go. You minister as a priest with this one. Now we have our hands woven through the handles of these 14 bags of treasures. Heavy as they are, we think they're balanced. And now you got to stand up with the strength of your hands and bring them into the house that is your heart. So let us stand, not literally, stand up in your minds with these heavy bags of treasure, with the strength that the Holy Spirit supplies, and bring it into our hearts. And I'll summarize them all for you here, just recounting what we've read. Before Abraham was given the promises, before God's covenant with Abraham, the man of faith, we meet one who is king of ancient Jerusalem, who is priest of God Most High, whose name means king of righteousness, who is also, based on his name and where he rules, the king of peace. And the Holy Spirit ensures that key details of this man, his mother, his father, his genealogy, and his death are left out so that everyone reading, reading closely enough, would know that the story is not done with him and to expect one like him to come. 
Because of how he interacts with Abraham, it is beyond dispute that his priesthood is greater than, better than, all that would come from Abraham, including the Levitical priests. Reflecting on this person and the story of Melchizedek, King David, king in Jerusalem, the same city, who would receive the promise from God that he would have a son to rule forever on his throne, applies this story to his future son and prophetically speaks for God to this future son. The Lord has made you a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In all of this, there's an expectation of something better and greater and more eternal than the Levitical priesthood and the high priestly order of Aaron, greater than the law itself. In this promise, and by your own experience, we know that perfection is unattainable through the old way. So, the law has been changed because the priesthood has changed. No longer Aaron and his sons, but by one who proves that he is this eternal priest by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So in Christ and his ministry as our great high priest, he sets aside the former commandment because of its inability to perfect us. And he gives us a better hope, a hope that enables us to draw near as well. So you hold them all now. Don't let yourself be distracted. These are the treasures of the person of Jesus Christ. This is the truth about him. These are the more mature teachings about Christ that the author of Hebrews gives to his readers to help them endure to the end. Take these bags of treasures and unload them, unpack them in the home of your heart. They're complex. They bring in the history of all 2,000 years of biblical history and they weave it all together and help you see who, in fact, this Jesus is on whom you have set your hope. I want you to see him. See him as he is. As the author says in chapter 3, consider Jesus, the real Jesus. He is your great high priest. He is the one greater than Moses. He is the eternal prophet. He is the end of the law for righteousness. He is the eternal uncreated one. He is the eternal offspring of David. He is the king of Israel. He is the one who sits on the throne of his father, David. He is the king of peace. He is the king of righteousness. He is king of Zion. He is the one greater than Abraham. He is the one greater than Aaron and all his sons. He is the one greater than Levi and all his sons. He is the sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God. He is the one who takes away sins. He is the mediator of the better covenant. He is the one who brings you a better hope. He is the one who brings you near. He is the one who qualifies you to serve as priests before God with him forever. He is the one who gives, keeps, and seals the better promises. He is the one who gives the Spirit without measure. He is the one who reveals the Father perfectly. 
He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the Lion of Judah. He is the heir of all things. He is your older brother. He is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised. He is the one who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll. He is the one who is called the Son of Man. And he is the Son of God. He is the one who ever lives to make intercession for you. He is the I Am. He is the one who will come one day, not so far off from now, to judge the living and the dead. He is the one who makes all things new. He is the bridegroom of the church. And he is yours, O Christian. See him today. Consider him. Lift your gaze with faith to look at him as he really is. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Pray with me. Father, I pray that as we have looked at the height of glory in the Son of God, that we would be changed. Pray that you would do so in our hearts as we have been able to see him as he really is. Not our small, tiny, man-sized imposters of Jesus Christ, but the real resurrected son of God. For those who still can't see him, I pray that you would uncloud their eyes and unveil their face. And may it happen today in Jesus name. Amen.